Welcome to the DTB podcast for April 2021, volume 59, number four. My name is David Fazakri. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast. We'll discuss some of the content of April's issue of DTB. Uh, I just wanted to say that in the last podcast, we mentioned that there is a survey running on our website to find out what people think of DTB. Thank you to everyone who has responded and completed the survey. Uh, we're leaving it open for a little bit longer. Uh, so if you want to take part, you can find a link to the survey. I think probably a pop-up appears on our, on our webpage. But anyway, the link to the survey is at the top of our homepage, dtb.bmj.com. Okay, on to business. UK is continuing to crack on with its COVID-19 vaccination program. Um, but there's another media storm brewing, which I thought we should just briefly discuss. This is, I think, the third one. We had the problem, well, not the problem, we had the debate over whether the UK had rather accelerated its um, approval process by approving vaccines under Regulation 174. Uh, then we had questions over the data for the efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine in older people. And now we've got concerns in several European countries over thromboembolic events with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I think at last count, about 11 countries have temporarily stopped using it until the EMA has reviewed its data. James, what have you made of this? I, I think I was most taken by, I think it was a professor of risk from Oxford who just basically said, this is silly. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And I think it is, it's always difficult, isn't it? And if you believe in the concept of first do no harm, which I think has been the sort of thinking behind this from a lot of countries, then you stop everything whilst you check things out. But I think really when one looks at the numbers of thromboembolic events that we're talking about and the background normal levels that you would expect to see, there really isn't any difference. And therefore, I think this is just going to be a storm in a teacup. But I'd be absolutely gobsmacked if they didn't basically suggest that this is safe and we should continue using it. We checked the uh, EMA website before we came on today. Today's the 18th of March. They are meant to be giving us their decision today. And if we get it before the end of this podcast, we'll let you know. And that principle of first do no harm, which is, you know, which is what we'll agree with, but it also begs the question, if you first do no harm and you stop using the vaccine, what harm are you causing if it turns out that there is no, there is no problem with, with the vaccine? And so people are left exposed to COVID for, for days or weeks. You will inevitably get more people who are infected and end up in hospital. Precisely. And I think they've forgotten this. This is not a static situation we are on a slope and people are slipping down that slope and all the time people are falling ill and and dying from covid so this is not a static situation and if you stop vaccinating then more people are likely to fall ill and die and in addition obviously you remove confidence in the population in having the vaccination program so you create another problem further down the line in getting people to take it so double harms if you like on one side of the scales versus this observation of thromboembolic events which don't seem to be any higher than the natural levels um, we see on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I, I'm in agreement. I heard, I can't remember which country it was from, 
but one of the politicians saying that um, that by doing this, they hoped that they would actually ensure more confidence in the vaccine by taking this precautionary approach of, of stopping using it and then showing people that actually, if it turns out to be safe, that they you know they were doing it for the right reasons. But I think I'm with you on this that that people. It, it just further undermines perhaps public confidence in the vaccines if it turns out there is no problem and there does seem to be a problem with the AstraZeneca one that, that it's, it's either got a PR problem um, right from the start it sort of had some issues which I don't think are the vaccine's fault it's just just the way it's been presented isn't it the, the questions about how the trial was run the funny thing about the first dose and whether you gave a half dose or a full full dose um, and then some of the questions about the trial design. But that seems to be sort of technical stuff that, that, that people have quibbled over, whereas actually when you look at the data, it's a vaccine, it works, and it's saving lives. I think that's right. And I think vaccination programmes are always fraught because they they're always more than just science and medicine because you are doing things to a population they they have cultural elements and political elements as well which always makes it messy and you know people have asked was was this european a political decision i don't think it was a political decision i just think it was an ultra safety cautious approach that perhaps was was well in, in our opinion probably isn't the right isn't the right one but we'll hopefully see what the ema say later today even possibly by the end of this podcast but we'll keep we'll keep checking the website and in this podcast we're going to give a brief overview of the editorial talk about uh, uptake of statins discuss the main review article on the use of aspirin for preeclampsia and then have a quick chat about a case report so let's start with the editorial. Uh, Joe Congleton's piece is called Asthma, a Disease of Variability. What does she mean? This is a great editorial. She's talking about not only the variability now between various guidelines on how we should manage asthma, but also on the variability of certain areas, treatment and success rate in treatment of asthma so variability in people's outcomes if you like and how actually if anything that is perhaps more of an issue now than it has been in the past and that certain people are losing out if you like on the on the management of their asthma i mean what i what i particularly liked about it was was highlighting that actually because we've now got various asthma guidelines and they're all starting to say slightly different things, which gives clinicians a bit of a headache in, or, or maybe it just gives them more options in which one they follow and, and, and how they approach the treatment of asthma. But this issue of whether, and I think she was particularly picking up, wasn't she, on people with severe asthma and whether they have access to uh, certainly some of the newer drugs for the management of the severe asthma, some of the monoclonal antibodies, and that, that at the moment there does seem to be more variation than, than you would expect. This is it. And I think, I think she makes a really good distinction between difficult to treat asthma and severe asthma and the fact that we now need to be referring patients with severe asthma into secondary care more than we are currently all the guidance actually do agree on this, that once you get people to higher levels in the step care of their asthma, they should be referred to secondary care. And yet studies have shown that probably less than 20% of people who should be referred into secondary care are, are not being referred in. And I think that's a point for her 
she says that you know actually if you look at those that should be eligible for these new biologics to treat their severe asthma we should be having probably about 47,000 people engaged in having that sort of treatment yet at the moment the uptake is a quarter of that about 10,000 people so there's a mismatch here between what uh, secondary care is seeing and what they should be seeing and that's something for primary care to be thinking about and actually saying hang on a minute do we need to be referring this patient in to get a higher level of care so there just seems to be two aspects of this that needed to improve one is as you say the primary care response and identifying people who should be referred for consideration of, of other treatments but then there seemed to be the issue of increasing the uptake or at least the access to the biologics which um, is obviously not a primary care issue but is something that, that the NHS as a whole needs to address in making sure that those services are available and accessible across the country and, and not just limited to specialist centres. I think that's it and I think it's like so much in the NHS as a whole I think sometimes the system isn't coordinated and, and all along from primary, secondary and tertiary care, better, better communication and better understanding is required. So we make sure patients get the right treatments. So a little bit back to our old, I was going to say friend, but it's our old enemy of postcode prescribing and just making sure that the uptake and the end result is that people have access to the biologics um, and make sure the systems are, are in place um, to make that happen. Exactly right. Okay, thank you. Just delving into one of our DTB Select items this month, we've looked at a, an article that was published in the British Journal of General Practice uh, that examined variation in statin prescribing. Uh, what did you make of this one? So yeah, so this is looking at uh, the change in NICE guidance from 2014. Up until then, Primary prevention was a fire and forget approach to statin use. You would start someone on a statin if their cardiovascular risk was above 20% as measured by Q-risk. And you would then keep them on that dose, no need to monitor, done. In 2014, they changed that to the concept of actually having a target non-HDL cholesterol level, 40% reduction and uh, also reduce the threshold at which we started statins to 10% from 20%. And this is a retrospective study which just looked at the use of statins and just looked at whether there'd been any increase in the use of statins since that guidance had developed. And basically what they showed was that actually, although there had been some increase in compliance with NICE guidance, actually prescribing of low stroke, medium intensity statins was still very common. And the authors suggest that that might be actually equivalent to 10 avoidable events every 10 years for every 1,000 patients that were still on a low intensity statin. So there was some concern regarding that we perhaps actually seeing some needless deaths because we hadn't stepped up our use of statins. And did you think that their conclusions were, were fair? I mean, one of the points that the authors made is that, that in, in general, clinicians are, are much quicker to respond to safety concerns. So if you get a, a, an NHRA drug safety update, which warns you of a problem, you act on it quite quickly. Whereas the implementation of changes to evidence and bringing in new clinical practice where evidence has shown it's effective is much, much slower. 
I mean, is that your experience of primary care? Yes, and I'm I'm glad it is too, to be honest, because I'm I'm glad that we moved towards safety alerts faster than changes in evidence, because I think evidence requires a narrative. And in fact, NICE itself in the 2014 guidelines looked at some studies that had that had compared low to medium intensity statin dose outcomes with high intensity statin outcomes. So they compared patients who were on 10 milligrams of atorvastatin with those that were on 40 or 80 milligrams of atorvastatin. And there were two studies they looked at, and neither of them demonstrated any difference in outcomes. Actually, that's not strictly speaking true. They found no difference in deaths from cardiovascular disease or all-cause mortality. They did find a slight reduction in non-death myocardial infarctions, but they considered this was clinically insignificant um, because the number was very small and the confidence limits got very very close to zero so actually the question is are we really going to see better outcomes by moving patients to higher doses of statins and statins are one of those drugs which as a gp you have to tread quite lightly there's a large number of patients out there who are still quite reticent about statins and I think you you know you're treading on eggshells sometimes. So I think the reason why there's been a slow there's two reasons why there's been a slow move. One is that issue, the fact that actually you've got to rearm yourself as a GP and and get the narrative right again to say, look, I know I had to say to you two years ago, I want you to start taking the statin, and I know you weren't that keen, but guess what? I want to give you more statin now. And so there's that narrative that you've got to get straight. The other thing, which is just a practical issue, I haven't got time in my busy day when I have 50 blood tests to look at, to sit down with my calculator and say, right, here comes a cholesterol level. Mm, Now it's 2.5. Now, what was this patient's cholesterol level before we started the statin? And what's 40% of that so I can work out whether they're to target or not? And that is a much, that, that actually I think is the reason why this has taken longer to happen because it's actually quite a bit of work to do that, you know, trialing through previous tests. And most of our clinical systems don't nicely map up our drug sort of starting points with the results. So, yeah, I think there's two issues there ongoing, which is why I'm sort of I'm sort of I'm, I'm with them, these authors. But actually, at the same time, I'm, I'm saying, look, actually, there's more to this than meets the eye. So there are, there, from your point of view, there are practical issues, which mean that the speed of implementation can actually be quite difficult. Um, I mean, what they seem to show also was that there are there are some practices who seem to be early adopters and, and move quite quickly, and then the, the others who are, who are slower, and then presumably the majority is somewhere in between. But your, your argument is that actually the, the, some of the practical issues you have to think about um, before you can make these wholesale changes. Yeah, I, I think that's it. And I think, like a lot of things, where I think we need to go IT solutions should do this for us in a much better way. And I think that, that that is definitely coming on stream now. There are increasing numbers of systems that sit on top of our clinical systems that are observing and um, noting. And I think with time, the practical elements of why these things take time will actually be much, much easier to implement. And isn't that the case that, that when nice guidance is issued or when any type of clinical guidance is issued 
those practical aspects around implementation and having the tools uh, launched at the same time that it's all very well launching the guidance and saying right we're now moving to x y or z targets but if if the software and if the tools that, that are used across primary care aren't in place then obviously it is going to take much longer for these things to to implement than than had they been designed and put in place right from from day one indeed absolutely right Okay, thank you for that. Let's talk about our main article now, aspirin for preeclampsia. What are the highlights from this one for you? This is a really good article and it reminds us how important preeclampsia is, that up to 5% of pregnancies are affected by preeclampsia and you not only have the maternal issues of hypertension and possibly moving to eclampsia with organ damage, but also it affects fetal growth increases your stillbirth risk, increases your risk of preterm delivery and perinatal death. So preeclampsia is a big issue. And what this very nice review does is it takes a recent Cochrane review that was published in 2019, adds to that nice guidance that came out in 2017. A couple of um, studies, one that came out in 2020 called, oddly enough, the aspirin trial, and also one that came out in 2018, I think, called the Asprey trial. And it's brought them all together. And it's basically giving us the evidence behind low-dose aspirin and its effectiveness at improving the outcomes for patients who might develop preeclampsia. So, that, so it clearly states the, the, the benefits, talks a little bit about, about the harms. Were you surprised by the, I suppose, by the size of the benefits or even the size of the harms? Yes, I think the simple answer is yes. I mean, basically, we're talking about aspirin reducing the risk of preeclampsia by 18%. That's uh, numbers needed to treat of around 61. And it's, you know, that's quite an impressive outcome for, for low dose aspirin. And I think the thing for me that is talking about the pragmatic issues of implementation is that it requires really aspirin to be started early in the pregnancy. And increasingly, I think women are actually not presenting with pregnancy until a little bit later, particularly into primary care. Most of them now recognise that they don't have to go to their doctor to get a pregnancy test to confirm. And I think this is something we just need to be aware of, that there is a significant number of women now who we should be considering aspirin when they fall pregnant and make sure they start it at 12 weeks. And that, that was the point, wasn't it? That the sooner you start it, as close to 12 weeks as, as possible, the, obviously the, the, the greater the benefit and also the the, the and i know it was only based on a, a relatively small study but there was also evidence that the higher unsurprisingly i guess the higher your compliance rate or adherence rate the better the outcomes as well so that the women who were highly adherent to aspirin throughout pregnancy had better outcomes than those who were less less adherent and the question of dose i mean what dose do we routinely use so it can be 75 milligrams i think there were some studies that looked at 150 but the cochrane review i think 80 percent of the women involved in in the cochrane meta-analysis were on 75 or 81 milligrams so i think 75 milligrams is all that's needed some places consider 150 milligrams but 75 seems to be the number and as you say the crucial thing is is assessing people for their risk early on and again the article talks about the the, the nice criteria for starting 
aspirin and I think also he, they summarise some of the other international guidelines and, and what sort of factors you look at for considering who's highest risk and who would, who would benefit most from, from aspirin. But the, but the nice ones are fairly clear and straightforward. Yes, they are. And, and as they discuss, it will pick up probably 30% of patients who are at risk. And even a possible new screening test that would combine maternal history with ultrasound studies of uterine arteries probably only picks up about 40%. So I think the general consensus is the NICE guidance is pragmatic and is pretty good at picking up those that are, are at risk. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and then finally, quick overview of our, our case report. Patient um, who presented with a meprazole-induced hypo magnesemia any learning points for you from this one yes i i find this fascinating because magnesium didn't really exist when i was at medical school and it wasn't it wasn't a compound that we were ever taught about or looked for or did blood tests on and yet now we have i think i think ppis are the single most prescribed drug in the world so here we have a drug that has a significant impact on some patients developing hypomagnesinemia. And I think the thing for me that I picked up from this, and this was a case review of a 72-year-old man who actually became basically poorly over a little while and eventually lost consciousness and was admitted. And, and this is when it all came to light. What was interesting about this was that this man actually, two years before this all happened, was noted to have hypokalemia and uh, rather than this being investigated it was just put down I don't know what it was put down to but he was simply given potassium supplements and my learning point from this is that hypomagnesemia can lead to hypokalemia it can also lead to effects on calcium through parathyroid hormone changes as well so I think that was my big learning point I hadn't clocked that patients with hypokalemia just ask yourself if you're not sure why that is happening could it be that their ppi is created hypomagnesemia and you know that might be worth checking so it's you know i think we all have just about got used to the concept that ppis can cause this but i think what uh, this has picked up is that sometimes you need to think a little bit more wider when you get problems with urea and electrolyte changes and of course we had a an alert from the MHRA a few years ago, didn't we? About, uh, and it was one of those slightly difficult, well, worded in a slightly difficult way that left left the onus on primary care to work out what to do about it. But, but when looking for problems with magnesium and PPIs, it was a suggestion that everyone should be assessed. Uh, now, does that happen? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think their guidance was that everyone starting on a PPI ought to have their magnesium level checked, and then routinely checked after that. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that's that's become standard practice at all. And I think it's, it, you know, it's an interesting one because this man, you know, I think for several years before this all came to light, had become quite weak and was having trouble walking. And because he was in his 70s, he just put this down to age, and yet with the PPI being stopped, he actually found his weakness and lethargy improved significantly and he became fully ambulatory afterwards. So, you know, I, it is increasingly an important element, I think. And I, th I think it's something which the whole 
therapeutic arena in primary care it's become so complex now with so many drugs we're using to prevent disease or prevent impacts of other elements on us and i think it's very welcome that we're seeing increasing numbers of clinical pharmacists coming into primary care because they're they're the experts at being able to sort of look at these these elements and perhaps will have the time to do reviews on a broader level and have a much more quality improvement sort of approach to things rather than the rather reactive approach we currently have so do you think we should be doing more looking for this more than we currently do it's an interesting question i don't know simple answer but i think i think the answer probably is it's a nice little project for someone to do you know let's just do everyone's magnesium levels in a large practice who's on a ppi and let's just see how much hypomagnesemia is out there if actually it transpires that no one has got a problem, then it may be that we can say, well, let's put that one to bed. But actually, if you find that there's a, you know, uh, a significant number of people with this, then it clearly picks up that something should be done. And I think this is an area that I, I'm rather sad that the health system has not really yet totally grasped that all GP data is now available you know we can do this research very simply it's all in our on our systems it it just requires someone to say let's do this research and uh, you know we could be doing some fabulous primary care reviews on a whole host of therapeutic areas if we just had the focus on it the trouble is it's not you know it's not a new drug it's not going to make anyone any money so it it needs funding from other sources and i think they've got their their sort of eyes elsewhere if any uh... Uh, clinical pharmacists working in GP practice want to run an audit on um, magnesium levels in patients who've been on PPIs for a while and they get an interesting result, we'd be interested to hear it. Indeed, yeah, it'd be actually really, really interesting. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. And if you enjoy these podcasts, uh, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. It'd be great to hear from you. You can find a link to the DTP iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Or alternatively, email us in the old-fashioned way at dtp at bmj.com. Uh, many thanks for listening. Uh, we hope you'll be able to join us for May's podcast. And last minute, anyone check the EMA website? Is there anything new on the vaccine? No. Nothing that I can see. So we'll have to save that one for the, for the next podcast. Indeed. In fact, all I've got is six hours ago, Europe was anxiously awaiting the EU regulator verdict. Right. <laughs>